Good to be with you all again, as always. Our second reading comes from the gospel according to Matthew, chapter 15, beginning of verse 10. Then Jesus called the crowd to him and said to them, listen and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth that defiles Then the disciples approached and said to him, you know that the Pharisees took offense when they heard what you said? He answered, every plant that my heavenly father has not planted will be uprooted. Let them alone. They are blind guides of the blind. And if one blind person guides another, both fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, explain this parable to us. Then he said, are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth enters the stomach and then goes out into the sewer? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this is what defiles. For out of the heart come evil intentions, murder, adultery, fornication, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile. Jesus left that place and went away to the district of Tyre and Sidon. Just then a Canaanite woman from that region came out and started shouting, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is tormented by a demon. But Jesus did not answer her at all. And his disciples came and urged him, saying, Send her away, for she keeps shouting after us. Jesus answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him and said, Lord, help me. He answered, It's not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes. Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. Then Jesus answered her, Woman, great is your faith. Let it be done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed instantly. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. There's a phrase that professional presenters know and understand well. Whether you are a teacher or a trial lawyer, whether you are a storyteller or a stand-up comic, if you're smart, you know this phrase and you take it to heart. The phrase is this, know your audience. Because if you know your audience, you're going to have a much better sense of what to say, right? And how to say it. You might even have a sense of how what you will say will land with your audience. But I would argue that when we read and study the Gospels, we actually need to know three audiences. The first audience to consider is the one who's actually watching and hearing Jesus speaking in the moment. For instance, is is Jesus sitting in a house telling his disciples a story? 
Is Jesus preaching to a crowd of poor people who have gathered outside on a hillside? Or is Jesus rebuking the powerful and the elite in the public square in the middle of Jerusalem? Who's Jesus talking to? What do we know about those people and how they might receive his words? That's the first audience. But the second audience to consider is the original readers or hearers of the gospel account. For you see, Jesus was alive up to, we think, around 32 AD or so. The gospels were getting written down from the late 60s to 100 AD. That's a generation or two later. Who were these people? What was going on socially, culturally, politically in that time and place? Considering the second audience, that helps us to understand why the four Gospels tell things differently, or even why they choose to tell us different stories about Jesus. The Gospel of Matthew, for instance, well, it's known <clears throat> as being a Jewish-oriented Gospel. It's written for a Jewish audience, and everything in it is considered from this Jewish lens. Keeping that in mind helps us understand how these things Jesus is saying and doing, how that might land with that audience. So, with this in mind, let's back up and we'll take a little running start into today's text from Matthew. Now, the setup here is that Jesus is up in Galilee, poor, rural Galilee. He's been preaching there, healing people, feeding people there. In the beginning of the chapter, there are these scribes and Pharisees who travel from Jerusalem up to Galilee because they want to talk to Jesus. They want to track him down and ask him this question. Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? Why don't they wash their hands before they eat? Now, it's important for us to keep in mind that Galilee, it's not very close to Jerusalem. Now, if Jesus was, say, in Jericho preaching, well, this, this whole scenario would make a lot of sense, right? You could see the scribes and Pharisees in Jerusalem saying, well, we've heard about this guy. He's in the neighborhood. So let's, let's take a day and we'll walk down to Jericho, talk to him, and come back. But to go from Jerusalem all the way up to Galilee, that would take days and days of traveling. Then they have to track him down. Then they have to talk to him. So the writer of Matthew is saying, these bigwigs from Jerusalem came all the way up to rural, no-count Galilee to track down a poor, itinerant preacher just to ask him why the guys in his crew don't wash their hands before dinner. Really? If we're only considering the first audience, this whole situation does not make much sense. If we consider the second audience, it starts to make more sense. Because you see, by the second half of the first century, this movement that was called the, the way, the way of Jesus, it's really starting to take off. And because of the apostles Paul's work, 
the church is growing most rapidly in Gentile areas. Think about the letters that we read from Corinth, Philippi, Thessalonica, Ephesus, even Rome. These are all Gentile areas in modern day Greece and Turkey and Italy, right? These are places filled with non-Jewish people. And as the church communities are forming, they're developing norms. So the early church has this big overarching question. To what degree do our Jewish beliefs, our rules, our practices, our culture, to what degree do they still apply? Do these Gentile Christians need to be eating kosher? Do the men need to get circumcised? Do all these folks need to become good Jews before they can be part of this Christian community? And we have to keep in mind that throughout Jewish history, there's a strict distinction, right? There's Jews and there's everybody else. There's God's chosen people and then everybody else. So a theme in Matthew's gospel is Jesus dealing with this question explicitly and implicitly. And Jesus interprets, reinterprets, and ultimately fulfills Jewish law. So it's to that audience, Matthew's audience, that Jesus says in this scenario, you know, it's not what goes in a person that defiles, it's what comes out, right? And in other words, it's not kosher food laws and rules that you should be worrying about, it's how you treat others, what you say to others, it's your motivation and your behavior towards other people. That's what matters. That's what makes you clean or defiled. Isn't that such a great Jesus answer? I mean, this is classic Jesus response. He just turns the whole thing around. It's also what's making the next part of the text a bit ironic. Because you see, Jesus leaves Galilee and he travels further north towards the region of Tyre and Sidon. Where is that? That's modern day Lebanon. Picture it on a map, right? He's in northern Israel. He's going further north into the west. And the further away from Jerusalem you get, the less Jewish the area is, the more mixed it is with other kinds of people, Canaanites, Syrophoenicians, all these other kind of Gentile people. There's this particular Canaanite, a woman who's heard about Jesus and that he can heal people. She needs her daughter healed of a demon. In today's language, we might consider this daughter to have a severe mental illness. Jesus tries ignoring this mother, this woman. She's relentless. Finally, he turns to her and he says, I didn't come here for you. I came for the lost children of Israel and I'm not taking the food that's meant for the children and throw it to the dogs. Y'all, I, I don't like Jesus talking this way. I mean, I know this woman's being persistent and even annoying, but Jesus is being rude here. He calls her a dog. But again, to Matthew's audience, this makes all the sense in the world. They would agree with Jesus on this one. They would say, yes, Jesus came for us. Not for all these other people, these people that Paul keeps converting in these faraway places. 
And if they're going to be in on this, they need to become us, assimilate to us. So back to the text, this woman in her desperation and in her faith, she won't take no for an answer. So she plays on his unfortunate derogatory metaphor. And she says, yes, but even the dogs get crumbs from the table. Then Jesus does this really rare thing for Jesus. He changes his mind. He, in a way, gets corrected by this woman, and he gives the woman what she's asking for. He says it's because of her faith. I'd like to also think that it's because she pushed Jesus to really see her, to see past the label of Gentile. He finally sees her as another full-fledged human being, someone who's in need someone who is worthy of his compassion. Now let's pause there, and I want to go quickly to this Old Testament text at the end of Genesis. So there you've got Joseph, who's the youngest of the 12 sons of Jacob, also known as the 12 tribes of Israel, right? Joseph is the favored son of Jacob. In this long, epic, dramatic story, Joseph's brothers get jealous of Joseph, and so they try and get rid of him. He ends up in Egypt, and over time he ascends the ranks in Egypt, and eventually he is in the household of Pharaoh. And through Joseph's great gift of dreams, he predicts there's going to be a seven-year famine in the region, right? So Pharaoh listens to Joseph and prepares for it. Joseph's role means that all the nation of Israel, all his brothers, all their families, can potentially survive this famine. The text that we read today is the reunion scene, right? And at first, the brothers, they don't recognize Joseph. But Joseph makes them really see him. And now they can see him not as some bigwig Egyptian, or even as a rival for their father's attention. They can finally see him for who he really is. This person with gifts from God. A person who can save them from the famine. All right, so at the beginning of the sermon, I said we had three audiences to think about. One, who Jesus is talking to. The second audience is who the gospel writer is talking to. The third audience is us. What do these texts have to say to us in this place, in this time? Well, friends, we get trained and conditioned essentially from birth to differentiate between us and them. We're taught that the goal of life is for us to gather up all our supplies and all that we need for us and our families and to let everybody else, our competitors out there, fend for themselves. We are taught that there are two kinds of people, us and them, and, well, frankly, we're just better than them. This gets reinforced in everything. It's the, the history of race in this country. We do this in, in regionalism. We certainly are doing this in politics. Even our national obsession with sports 
is really all about division and rivalry and domination. Y'all, there are friends I can't even talk to when basketball season gets here. (laughs) We are trained to do this. Most things in culture are set up to divide us. But here, Jesus himself gets shaken out of this trance. And he sees this woman as a fellow human being, worthy of compassion. Joseph could have taken the moment to gloat in front of his brothers. He could have taken the moment to take revenge on his brothers. Instead, he seizes the opportunity to save the very people who before could only see him as a rival. Friends, when we look at the history of the institution known as the church, boy, have we bought into this thing about division, about us and them. For most of the church's history, we have aligned ourselves with the rivalries of empires. And through that, we have slaughtered countless others. The Crusades, the Inquisition. Much of the church has been in lockstep with the exploitation of colonialism. And the church has continually created division after division within ourselves. And in all of it, we have claimed God's with us, God's not with you. These resources, these blessings, this identity, it's for us, it's not for you. What in the world does it look like for the church and the members of it to try and change all of that? I want to close with a couple of examples. One example of how we can start changing this mindset is found in our fellowship hall. You may have noticed that there are all these portraits that are up around the walls. These portraits are of our neighbors, neighbors that some of us have gotten to know through the church's Saturday sanctuary ministry. It's an opportunity for us to really see our neighbors as people with names, with faces, with stories to tell. People who, no matter the circumstances, are worthy of our love, our compassion, and our support. Likewise, we've wrapped up another successful summer of Asheville Youth Mission. Thank you for your partnership in that. And in all of our Youth Mission co-locations, part of our ongoing work with these young people is to help them see that person who's struggling in poverty and addiction and food security or perhaps with mental illness, to see them as more than just some stranger who maybe is trying to take their resources or even harm them. Instead, we want young people to grow up with an understanding that that's a full person like them with a name and a story and they are someone worthy of our compassion and even worthy of our advocacy. Friends, if, if we get into a practice of doing this, of seeing the world and the people in it this way, eventually our society will get to a place where we could no longer abide a system that leaves somebody behind. We could no longer abide living as a community in a way that turns our backs on the most vulnerable sisters and brothers among us 
during their greatest hour of need. The truth is, y'all, we, we have all these divisions, but they're really just constructs, aren't they? And as the Apostle Paul once said, in truth, there is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no male and female. We are one through Christ. The truth is we are all God's children and we all deserve food from God's abundant table. Some have said our country has never been more divided than it is right now. That may be true. But the good news is every day God gives us opportunities to practice seeing each other. May we use those moments to live out God's call for compassion, humility, generosity, and God's love. Amen.